This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, in a week where Vladimir Putin was branded a war criminal. The International Criminal Court has issued two warrants of arrest in the Ukraine situation. For Vladimir Putin, president of the Russian Federation. And unashamedly, paraded around occupied Ukraine. A Kremlin camera filmed the leader driving a car into the outskirts of Mariupol. Indeed, breaking bread with the Chinese President Xi Jinping on his three-day state visit to Russia. China attaches great importance to China-Russia relations because we are each other's biggest neighbouring country as well as strategic partners. Prompting an even greater show of solidarity for Ukraine and exposing deep divisions in Asia. This is the first time that a Japanese sitting prime minister is in an active war zone since World War II. He is the first prime minister to do so in decades now. And it sends out a strong signal given that in neighboring Russia, we have the Chinese president Xi Jinping who is there to express his solidarity. So he's the world's richest man and now Russia's most wanted. But can that international arrest warrant stop Putin in his tracks? And will he finally be held accountable for his crimes? Can China even do what the West has failed and get Putin to put an end to the war for good? I'm Siobhan Maguire and on today's episode, I'm joined by Donika Obakon, Professor of Politics at DCU, to find out more. Danica, here we are on day 392 of the war on Ukraine. We don't see an end in sight. We've the International uh, Criminal Court in The Hague accusing the Russian president of committing war crimes in Ukraine. But does any of this actually mean anything? Oh, well, the International Criminal Court issuing a warrant to a head of state is is something very important. It's 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 a very rare event. It's only been done twice in the past uh, to the president of uh, Sudan and uh, to uh, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. And, um, you know, it's it will certainly curtail Vladimir Putin's travel plans. Um, 123 countries have signed up to the International Criminal Court and they include, of course, Ireland, but they also include allies of, of Russia countries that would be dependent on Russia. I think of somewhere like Tajikistan, for example. Tajikistan is heavily dependent on Russia. And Vladimir Putin visited Tajikistan only a few months ago. So were he to visit now, uh, Tajikistan would be obliged under the International Criminal Court to arrest Vladimir Putin. So he's going to have to bear that in mind when he's traveling. 
Most of the countries of the world now have an obligation to arrest Vladimir Putin if he's spotted on their territory. Um, now, you know, you might say, is there a chance that he's going to be handed over to The Hague anytime soon? Um, justice takes time. And what they're at the stage now is, like after any crime, is collecting the evidence. And, uh, you know, you look at someone like Slobodan Milosevic, uh, you know, the Serbian leader who was, you know, behind massacres in the Balkans in the 1990s. It took more than a decade, but he ended up dying in a prison in The Hague in 2006. Who would have thought of that in 1993, 1994, you know? Or Charles Taylor, the Liberian uh, leader who was, again, responsible for atrocities in his native country during the Civil War. 2012, he was uh, arrested, uh, rather sentenced to 50 years in prison. So if there's a regime change in Russia, if Vladimir Putin loses his authority in Russia, I, of course he could be handed over by the Russians themselves. So this is kind of a forewarning. What it's saying to the rest of the world is, you know, we are labelling you as the war criminal. We're coming for you at some point. What are the crimes he's accused of? Well, they've decided that there are many crimes, of course, that Russia is accused of, and there's documentary evidence to support, including, you know, murder and and, and rape. But they've, they've decided to, um, you know, select this particular crime of abducting children, forcibly abducting children and repatriating them against the, their will and the will of their families to Russia. It's part of a re-socialization process, which only accentuates the hurt that's been inflicted upon the Ukrainian people, that not only are there, you know people being killed um, and, and displaced, but you know the children of those families then are being taken by the very people who killed them and, and placed against their will uh, in families so that they will, the long-term objective is that they will forget their country, they will forget their families, and they will become good Russians. Sometimes, indeed, they're paraded on Russian TV, singing the Russian national anthem, expressing their gratitude for being, you know, rescued from 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 Ukraine. And of course, this is heavily choreographed on state television. It's um, this is what they've decided to focus on. And and Vladimir Putin has on television acknowledged that they do this. Indeed, of course, in Russia, they try to present it as a humanitarian exercise. And it's not only Vladimir Putin, of course, it's their ombudsman for children as well, who they've also uh, issued a warrant for her arrest. And unfortunately, despite the promises of never again and despite the publicity, the understanding that the law is out there, there is this still very prevalent proclivity of people with power to believe that they can subject weaker people to that power and do what they want. So when the Russians come, as I said, they they murder, they rape, and then, as I said, they they, they often take people uh, involuntarily to Russia, and uh, in the case of children, they place them with Russian families. We've had a busy old week so far, Danica. We have had footage of uh, now, albeit footage in the dead of night of um, President Putin in driving around Mariupol. Um, we have this three-day state visit from President Xi. The flip side of that, we now have Japan with Ukraine exposing even deeper divisions um, in Asia. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot to unpack there. I yeah. mean, yeah, the, the, the visit to Mariupol was bizarre. I mean, like it was in the dead of night. It was clear that it was unannounced. It was unheralded. People, the, no, he virtually met nobody. I mean, he was shown in empty the halls and things like that. For those who remain in the city a year later, basics like heat and electricity are still hard to come by. Many Ukrainians noticed Putin made his visit under the cover of darkness. The Ukrainian defense ministry called it cowardly, saying, as befits a thief, Putin visited Ukrainian Mariupol under the cover of night. 
And he was also in Crimea as well for the ninth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. Uh, and then, of course, goes back to Moscow. There were even conspiracy theories that it's not Vladimir Putin, of course, because, you know, all sorts of things there, because it, it, it looked so unusual. Uh, but he went back yeah, to meet uh, Xi Jinping. This has been in the offing for a long time. Indeed, there were rumors that Xi Jinping would come to Moscow at the time of the anniversary when Joe Biden went to Kiev, for example. Um, this is solidifying, yeah, a, a relationship between two autocrats. But it belies an asymmetry in that relationship. I mean, China's just so much more important economically than Russia's. It's 10 times bigger in terms of its economic output. And of course, Russia is uh, a friend in need. And as, as the old cliche goes, a friend in need is an acquaintance. It certainly isn't, you know, in China's interest that Russia loses this war. Um, they, they don't want to see another autocracy fail. Because just as we as a democracy like to see the world filled with democracies, autocracies like to see other dictatorships flourish. And therefore, a failure, Putin's failure in, in, in Ukraine would be a failure for China's brand. And China is on the ascendancy. And of course, they also tie in the fate of Ukraine with their own uh, aspirations with Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan for them is uh, Chinese territory. And uh, of course, there are so many similarities. I was in Taiwan just a couple of weeks ago. And of course, these were emphasized to me. I mean, China uh, is a much larger dictatorship just as Russia is compared to Ukraine uh, and Taiwan is a democracy um, and it's you know it's it's facing a large nuclear power um, and it's unsure about what support it would get from the West were it invaded so you know China's attitude is is that if 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 Russia can come away I think with with territory cost free or at least with acceptable costs um, in Ukraine it might send therefore uh, an acceptable precedent that China might try and work out with Taiwan. Xi comes to um, Moscow not only bearing solidarity, but also a 12-point peace plan, which has been largely um, ridiculed, I guess, by many, simply because there's no mechanism there to enforce any of its provisions. It's merely a wish list. Uh, it does talk about territorial integrity and sovereignty and the UN Charter, which is good for Ukraine. Um, people think that it's largely doing that again because of Taiwan, that they want to, their claim to Taiwan recognized. But it makes no call on the Russians to, to withdraw. Uh, it just simply calls for a ceasefire. And many suspect that this is motivated now, why now, you might say, because Russia is is on the back foot, has been on the back foot for some time. It doesn't have any alternative source of weaponry lined up. I mean, it's 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 got drones from Iran, but where else will it get weapons from? So a ceasefire would freeze the current situation indefinitely. And that would mean that Russia would be left with large territories in Ukraine. And that's something that's unacceptable for the Ukrainians. So Volodymyr Zelensky, who Xi Jinping is supposed to make a phone call to uh, in the near future, has has ruled this out of order. Yeah, because Xi's visit to Russia is almost an endorsement of Putin. It's a very sensitive little game they're all playing, Donica. It is. I mean, from China's perspective, it it wants to, as I said, support Russia, but not to the not at the expense of Chinese interests. Um, you know, so China's far more integrated into the global economy than Russia is, and China's actually benefiting from this war because, of course, as Russian energy is is now diverted away from Europe, it has to go somewhere, and it's largely being bought up by China and 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 India. So they're getting you know cut price fossil fuels uh, from Russia, but um, but they don't want sanctions on China like Russia has in 
endured because, you know, it would be far more detrimental to the Chinese economy, which which actually, unlike the Russian economy, Chinese actually make stuff and they sell stuff and they sell it primarily to the European Union and to the US. So they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, yeah, bal- it's a balancing act. And, and Secretary of State Blinken has signaled to them that were they to augment their support beyond the rhetorical, um, you know, like giving weapons, for example, to Russia, which they desperately need, that that would be a game changer and that would lead to consequences, which, again, I, I, I doubt that China would be would be wanting to, 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 to attract. So I think that if they did give weapons, it would certainly be clandestine. It wouldn't be overt. Yeah, because Putin's plan has been to pivot east. Yeah, and I think that's because, again, it's Russia has always felt more comfortable in some respects uh, in the east. I mean, even if you take the Russian Empire, because let's face it, what we're seeing now is essentially a modern version of that imperial project. I mean, Russia has always felt that in Europe it was never fully accepted. Um, and all those major trends in European history, be they the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, Russia was always kind of on the outside. Whereas in Asia, it felt that they, they were masters. I mean, you you know, the Russian Empire 400 years ago was just around Moscow. The major expansion was eastwards, where they encountered all sorts of indigenous peoples who have now been incorporated into the Russian Federation. I mean, I spent many summers in a place called Buryatia, uh, which is essentially a place north of Mongolia. They're a Mongol people, have a Mongol language, but they've been heavily Russified. And in fact, they disproportionately are fighting in Ukraine. They've been brought all the way from Buryatia to fight in Ukraine because there's also this internal colonial dynamic where if you're a Buryat um, and you're you're poor, you're much more likely to be fighting in Ukraine than if you're a white middle-class uh, Russian. And and that's one of the reasons why there was such a large exodus of Russians after Putin's mobilization call last September, because these were people who never thought that they would be affected by war, um, you know, and, and they got on very expensive flights out of there. And they're hiding out this war in places like Turkey and Georgia and Kazakhstan. Um, and, and only then will they return. Uh, so it's it's been a very disruptive war because, again, just to emphasize something that I guess a lot of people will overlook because of Russia's size. I mean, the Russian economy is not that large. Um, it's it, it's a little bit bigger than Spain. It's somewhat smaller than Italy's. Um, you know, they can't endure this level of, I guess, um, war indefinitely. And that's why China's support right now is is a vital lifeline. Um, and, and Putin is certainly, uh, we, we don't know, of course, what they're saying behind closed doors, but certainly it gives him a lifeline at a time when, as you say, with the International Criminal Court judgment um, to issue a warrant for his arrest, he, he needs friends. He does. He certainly needs friends. Um, and then we look at kind of the, the show of support for Zelensky this week. Our own Taoiseach, um, Leov Radkar, was on the phone with him the other day, uh, basically affirming that Ireland would indeed still take care of our Ukrainian refugees and offer our support. Um, and then, surprise, surprise, this visit out of the blue by Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida yesterday, Donica. Um, now, Nobody saw that coming. See one of the Japanese prime minister in Ukraine and the other of the Chinese president in Russia. And Abhishek, uh, along with the West, Japan has been a vocal supporter of Ukraine ever since the Russian invasion. We also do know that just recently, in fact, Japan also pledged a $5.5 billion aid to Ukraine. 
No, no. And of course, for security reasons, they tend not to advertise these visits in advance. J Japan has been uh, a very generous contributor to Ukrainian, uh, you know, war effort and reconstruction effort. They've given already three billion uh, euro. They were the only part of the G7 that hadn't actually sent their uh, leader to Ukraine thus far. So in that sense, they're they're completing that particular jigsaw. But it's it's all part again of of reinforcing the the message that the West is in for the long haul because of course. Dick Dictatorships can focus their resources on a war much better than in democracies. In democracies, we're always asking questions. Is this the best way we could be spending our money? Is this really in the national interest? Dictators don't have to worry about such things. Uh, so, you know, that's why, for example, Russia is using more ammunition every day in Ukraine than the European Union produces in a month. Uh, because European Union economies over many years quite rightly responded to their electorates and said, look, we don't need to spend this kind of money. We should be spending it on health and education and housing. But Russia has taken advantage of that. So even though, as I said, it's economy is quite small by international standards. Its military is huge, um, if not particularly uh, professional. Vladimir Zelensky has to also, you know, walk a fine line in that he, when he, when he reaches out to the West, he's always asking for something. And yet he has to also appear grateful for what he's already received because he knows that in a democracy, if he doesn't appear is sufficiently grateful, people will ask, well, why should we give him more? So I, I've always noticed that when he's went to Brussels, when he's went to Washington, D.C., that he, 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 I mean, I think it's the power of his personality that he manages to pull it off, that he's always with a smile asking for more, saying he's grateful, but saying, look, we need we need one final push. And there is an expectation going, you know, you mentioned it's it's, it's day 392 of the war. I mean, it's, it's, there is an expectation that there will be a major counteroffensive by the Ukrainians in late March or early April as, as, as spring really takes root because all those uh, leopard tanks that have been promised, uh, indeed the Slovaks and the Poles have promised uh, fighters, planes, that, you know, they haven't actually, you know, been transported yet, but they will by then. And, and that's when the hope is from the Ukrainian perspective that there will be a major shift in their favor, which is also why they're not open to talk from Xi Jinping uh, at the moment of, of freezing the conflict. Just when you mentioned Poland, I mean, what is the significance of a NATO country intervening like that? Well, I mean, their argument is is that they're supplying weaponry for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. So this isn't a direct NATO intervention. Now, Russia will always call this a, a provocation. But then again, you know, Iran is supporting uh, Russia, and 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 you know, Russia is looking for weapons from wherever it can get, including, of course, from from China. Um, but you know, for Poles, this is not just uh, you know a strategic judgment. This is an emotional response. I mean, the Poles were under Russian rule for centuries, and and they also firmly believe that if Ukraine does not successfully defend itself against Russia, that the Poles are next in line. Certainly, that's how the people in the Baltic states feel as well. So they are very grateful to Ukraine from their perspective for fighting their fight for them in Ukraine um, and saving the Poles from having to do it. Um, because there is a question, and certainly it was emphasized during the presidency of Donald Trump, as really what kind of support would they expect were Russia to invade? I mean, there is, you know, and you look at DeSantis, for example, during the last week, he described, the, the you know, Russia's murderous invasion of Ukraine is simply a territorial dispute. You know, it, it's 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 like, I don't know how to describe it. it, it it's like a, a, a rapist, uh, you know, trying to rape someone, you saying that it's a disagreement about whether to have sex or not. I mean, like, you know, this is essentially, you know, the the the, the abusive language that's used, but it, it, it panders to a large constituency in America, the Trumpian support base, which argue that, you know, this is a faraway place. You know, why should we be, you know, our, our tax dollars shouldn't be going to defend it. Uh, of course, for Poland, it's very, very different. Uh, they are on the front line as well, they know. 
I want to ask you in relation to the arrest warrant now, and and we know that a lot of countries are coming out, including Ireland, saying that look, if if President Putin um, comes to this country, he will be arrested. Is this kind of slowing down of Putin's movement going to have a significant effect going forward? I think at the moment, in the short term, it's going to be more symbolic um, because I don't think that Vladimir Putin was going to visit Ireland anytime soon. For example, all flights from Russia to the European Union are blocked. Um, so how he would even have got here is 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 is, is a matter of dispute. So it, it, it's more about reinforcing the notion that Russia is a pariah state and and Vladimir Putin's regime is a regime that no, you know, no democracy certainly, uh, but no state that wants to do business with the West either can 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 really engage with. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, as I said, Vladimir Putin is particularly happy with this visit from Xi Jinping at the moment because it's, it's, it's trying to show that he does have some allies. You know, these two leaders, they've met 39 times since she came to power. She has, has just cemented his, his third term in power. Both these men have positioned themselves as leaders uh, for life. I mean, this is a, a partnership about creating a new global order uh, with China firmly at the helm. And, you know, the timing of this is, is critical for Putin. If you look at the way the vote goes in the United Nations, Russia has very few strong allies. I mean, actually, I've been looking at the UN votes over the last year. They have about five countries that they can rely on at the UN, and they are other dictatorships. They are Syria, they are Belarus, they are North Korea, they are Eritrea. That's not exactly a great counterbalancing act if you're taking on, you know, the European Union and the United States. And Russia's keenly aware of that. So, yeah, the International Criminal Court is is, is important about messaging. I, I have been very impressed by Kaya Kallas, the Prime Minister of Estonia. She was recently re-elected. And she, again, is a small state. The population of Estonia is smaller than that of Dublin. She said it's, it's, it's about sending a message that, you know, the use of force is not acceptable as, as a policy tool uh, in, in the European neighbourhood. And it's, it's, it's about ending the, the cycle of abuse that the Kremlin has, um, you know, inflicted on its neighbours. And, and, and therefore, it's, it's also a deterrent, hopefully, for future dictators, that there is a price to be paid, that one day they might see themselves, like Slobodan Milosevic, dying in a prison cell in The Hague. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin was always so upset when he sees the fate of dictators like that, whether it be Milosevic, whether it be Colonel Gaddafi, uh, whether it be Saddam Hussein, um, you know, because he knows that in a dictatorship, you don't govern by the affection of the people. You govern by the perception that you are invulnerable. You have military power. And defeat in a war, there's no better way to illustrate that you've lost that monopoly of violence than when you lose a war. So he's vested everything on this. And the criminal court, you know, issuing a warrant for his arrest gives him some insight to a life that he might lead after this war if it doesn't go well for him. My thanks to Danica O'Bacon, Professor of Politics at DCU, for joining me today. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by myself, researched by Neve McGovern with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from CNN, Sky News, the International Criminal Court, the BBC, RTE and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.